name is Tom, and welcome to the sixth episode of the History Matters podcast. The aim of these podcasts is to go into some depth on various, mostly modern, historical issues, with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. And in this episode of History Matters, we will be continuing on with the permanent neutral of Switzerland, picking up where we left off last time at the end of the First World War, and just moving on through to Switzerland at the end of the second. Hopefully that sounds of some interest to you. Before we get going, as ever, I would love to recommend just a few of the best readings I consulted for this week's episode. Firstly, the brilliant writing of Neville Wiley, formerly from the University of Nottingham, uh, now I believe he's at a Scottish university, but he has written a really excellent chapter on Swiss neutrality in uh, European neutrals and non-belligerents during the Second World War, in addition to a completely separate work called Britain, Switzerland and the Second World War. He is a, a really engaging writer, scholarly but accessible. In addition, there was also the chapter on Swiss army doctrine in the interwar period in uh, Small Powers in the Age of Total War, which was pretty good despite some pretty shocking editing in a few places. And finally, the Historical Dictionary of Switzerland that I believe I mentioned last week is also still really worth checking out. Now to kick things off, let us begin with part of the second Swiss national anthem called the Swiss Psalm. Although popular in Switzerland for a long time, it wasn't declared an official national anthem by the Swiss Federal Council until as late as 1981, even though it had been originally composed 140 years before that. I gather in many circles it still isn't quite as popular as the old anthem. Anyway, have a listen and see what you think. So let's start with the interwar period, which was in general fairly quiet for Switzerland as regards neutrality, as it simply continued on as before the First World War. Although the Swiss did vote to join the League of Nations in a highly contentious referendum in 1920, it was given a unique exception from the League's military obligations, although it was still required to implement any economic sanctions that the League deemed necessary. Even with this major exemption, the federal government was never fully comfortable with membership, feeling that it compromised traditional Swiss neutrality. A far greater initial concern for Switzerland was the revolutionary situation in much of Europe immediately after the First World War. Swiss military planners were particularly worried about a communist coup in Germany leading to an invasion or about a domestic uprising. An operational plan was even developed by the Swiss chief of staff in 1921 to fight off any such breach of Swiss neutrality. The coming to power of Mussolini in Italy in 1922 and the establishment of Italian fascism was an additional headache for neutral Switzerland. More than ever, Swiss leaders were worried about potential Italian designs on its Italian majority speaking cantons in the south. There was also the passage of the notorious Swiss Banking Act of 1934, an act that many people to this day are in part no doubt somewhat familiar with. This act allowed for anonymous numbered bank accounts to be created, allowing owners to hide or protect their assets from seizure. This was particularly useful for many of Germany's Jews, 
as it helped to hide their wealth from Hitler's new government that had come to power the previous year. Switzerland became home to the strictest and most expansive banking secrecy laws in the world. As we will see later on, this new legislation would eventually make Swiss banking deeply unpopular with the Western Allies in addition to Germany. A few years later, in 1936, the leader of the Nazi party's Auslands organisation in Switzerland, a man named Wilhelm Husloff, was assassinated at Davos. The Swiss government refused to extradite the alleged assassin, where he would no doubt have received a brutal fate, and instead sentenced him to 18 years imprisonment, although he was eventually released after the war in 1946. Now we turn to the Swiss army in the interwar period. Like most of the European armed forces, the Swiss army had to cope with massive budget cuts, whilst at the same time, the army also had to deal with all of the new technological and doctrinal issues that the First World War had thrown up. The first post-war chief of general staff stated that, never before in history, has a war led to such profound novelties as the world war that lies behind us. Can a small state such as ours now procure the materials necessary for waging a war on its own? Faced with such an intimidating new armament landscape that Switzerland was ill-equipped to compete in, many in the Swiss military leadership doubled down on Switzerland's traditional militia infantry army and rejected such new concepts as mechanisation and reliance on artillery firepower. They remained wedded to old-school infantry-led offensive action as the key to potential military success. You may remember General Oleg Villa, the commander-in-chief of the Swiss Armed Forces during the First World War, who was to state that, I am convinced that the single most decisive factor is manliness, pushed to the highest possible potency by discipline, from the highest leader down to the last drummer. Tactical behaviour is not determined by the power of a gun, but solely by the necessities of the moment. For General Villa, it was still the development of a classic breech-loading rifle that was the epoch-shaping military development of the last century, not tanks, aircraft, or indirect fire artillery. For Villa, new technological improvements would not bring any further major changes to combat methods. The creation of a smaller, more professional, and better-equipped force would also have risked destroying the traditional values of the Swiss militia, which many Swiss military leaders valued as a school for traditional and anti-revolutionary values. Social control, order and stability were values that the Swiss militia was best placed to inculcate, and so major reform was never on the table for a politically conservative Swiss establishment. In 1927, the son of the famous Ulrich Villa, a Colonel Villa, was instructed to write a new doctrine and instructional manual for the Swiss army. Predictably, this manual, known as Fieldings 27, was highly conservative and dismissed the new threat of armour as being of little use in Swiss terrain, and stressed the primacy of manoeuvre warfare and the central importance of the meeting engagement. Above all, static or trench warfare was to be avoided at all costs, and the Swiss army was to take the fight to the enemy at every available opportunity. If the Swiss army was lacking in any crucial equipment, then that would simply have to be eventually provided by Switzerland's presumed future allies, not by itself. And so Switzerland clung on to its scantily financed mass army, although improvements were made with regard to machine guns, mortars and anti-tank guns in the 1930s, but would still remain woefully lacking in regards to medium and heavy artillery. Now, let us begin the topic of Switzerland in the Second World War with a quote from Winston Churchill, written in 1944. He said that, Of all the neutrals, Switzerland has the greatest right to distinction. 
She has been a sole international force, linking the hideously sundered nations and ourselves. What does it matter whether she has been able to give us the commercial advantages we desire, or has given too many to the Germans to keep herself alive? She has been a democratic state, standing for freedom in self-defiance among her mountains, and in fought, despite of race, largely on our side. Churchill was almost certainly being far too flattering to the Swiss, as he knew precious little about what Switzerland got up to in the war, and thus had a strong tendency to underplay the darker side of Swiss behaviour. Certainly his endorsement of Switzerland cannot be accepted at face value. In more recent years, Switzerland has been widely condemned for its part in the war, with accusations of abetting genocide by refusing to offer sanctuary to Hitler's victims, as well as offering industrial and logistical support to the Third Reich. These issues have severely tarnished the prestige of Swiss neutrality. Yet, at the start of the war, none of these issues were inevitable. The early period of the conflict, from September of 1939 until roughly June 1940, saw Switzerland in a situation very similar to that of the First World War, balanced precariously between two seemingly evenly matched sets of belligerent forces. During the Phony War, Switzerland was easily able to swat away German protests about German irritation over the appearance of unneutral articles in the Swiss press, and its armed forces even engaged in military planning with the French general staff over Swiss force deployment in the event of a major German invasion. One major change compared to the last war was the shift in popular sentiment towards the Allies. Whereas the First World War had seen support for the belligerents divided along traditional ethno-linguistic lines, this was much more muted during the Second World War, as the Swiss population was deeply suspicious of totalitarian Germany and supportive of the more democratic Western nations. It was only the stunning success of the German May 1940 offensive that completely altered the strategic landscape for Switzerland and forced it to re-evaluate how to maintain its neutrality in the middle of a German-dominated European order. The balance of power upon which Swiss neutrality had rested since 1815 was finally gone. The sudden emergence of German hegemony produced a moment of maximum danger for Switzerland. Switzerland had not yet improved its Alpine redoubt defences with modern weaponry, and the relatively poor state of its army meant that it was completely exposed to a German and Italian invasion. Swiss political leaders were deeply worried that Berlin would now issue demands that were incompatible with Swiss neutrality, such as the transiting of troops, or insisting on the severance of diplomatic relations with London. On June 25th, the Swiss Foreign Minister and Federal President, Marcel Pillet, broadcast a highly defeatist speech, suggesting inevitable alignment with Germany by instituting whole-scale domestic political reform. Going even further, in September, Pillet even met with leaders of the small Swiss fascist movement. These months saw a dangerous sense of fatalism for many Swiss political leaders, with the belief that alignment with Germany was now inevitable both with and without an actual invasion. Fortunately, at the time, Germany was attempting to woo Vichy France into the Axis camp and gain access to the French fleet, and so riding roughshod over the rights of Europe's longest standing neutral was not in his diplomatic interest. Nonetheless, Germany was still able to pressure Switzerland into introducing a blackout to hinder British bombers, as well as forcing it to repatriate 45,000 French troops who had sought sanctuary in Switzerland to avoid capture during the fighting in June. And so, the immediate crisis of summer and autumn of 1940 was gradually weathered. The momentum behind domestic political reform slowly dissipated over the autumn. On the 10th of September, 
After affirming the need for a total revision of the federal constitution, the council agreed to withhold further discussion so long as the economic and political dangers facing Switzerland remained. Swiss neutrality was to remain, for the time being at least. Notably, although the Swiss had expelled French soldiers from its territory, it did not do the same to the Polish legation, or the many Polish soldiers who had entered Switzerland with the French. Germany was never to confront Switzerland with demands that were outright incompatible with its neutrality, such as the introduction of racial laws, the suspension of the constitution, or joining the tripartite pact. Throughout the war, Germany would certainly remain irritated by the activities of the Swiss press, as well as overflights by Allied air forces, which will be discussed later, but it limited its displeasure to merely lodging 169 official complaints through diplomatic channels. In response to this, Swiss authorities did tighten press censorship, as well as lifting a six-year-old ban on the sale of the Volkische Beobachter, the official newspaper of the German Nazi party. Given the absence of decisive German or Italian political demands during the war, the greatest strain on Swiss neutrality would prove to be economic. Economic autarky was not an option for the Swiss, lacking indigenous sources of raw materials and fuel, coupled with the export orientation of most of Switzerland's leading companies. Just as during the First World War, Switzerland still possessed an impressive financial sector and a highly sophisticated industrial base, whose output, though small in global terms, was of considerable value to the war economies on both sides. At the start of the war, both Britain and France placed huge orders for all sorts of industrial goods relating to armaments, and sought to link the production of Swiss industry to their own needs, with the signing of a war trade agreement in April of 1940. At that point in time, the Western Allies dominated the order books of so many Swiss companies, that in May of 1940, Germany complained that Switzerland was now a huge armaments plant, working almost exclusively for England and France. For Britain in particular, sectors of Swiss industry produced high-quality manufactured goods that it had no ready replacement for, particularly precision machine tools, fuses, dual bearings, chronographs, and of course, high-quality watches and stopwatches for use in the army. Perhaps the greatest item of demand by belligerents on both sides would prove to be the Orlikon 20mm anti-aircraft guns, weapons which the British Admiralty considered absolutely vital, and the First Lord of the Admiralty, Ven Churchill, even appealed directly to the commander of the Swiss Army to try and speed along delivery. This situation would, of course, change dramatically after the fall of France, and by the end of 1940, Swiss exports to Germany had trebled and accounted for nearly a third of all Swiss trade. Only 1% of the major order for the Ehrlichen anti-aircraft guns would now be delivered to the Royal Navy, and, humiliatingly, the remainder eventually ended up mounted on the ships of a German Kriegsmarine. Virtually none of the other huge orders placed by Britain and France would end up being fulfilled. Although isolated from the Allies after 1940, Switzerland was still able to maintain some crucial trade links through the Rhine River and an overland connection to Italian ports. Yet despite these tenuous links, Britain's trade with Switzerland was to slump to no more than 2% of total Swiss exports after mid-1940. Ultimately, Switzerland's remaining trade with the outside world was dependent on German and Italian good graces, but occasionally Germany would allow Swiss exports that did have military applications. For instance, special dyes and paints, produced by Switzerland's renowned chemical companies in Basel, continued to be a major export to Britain, despite a clear preference for khaki-coloured paint, 
which was used on aircraft tanks and military installations. This was despite the strange fact that many of the chemicals and materials used in Swiss paint manufacture were actually supplied by Germany. It was not until May of 1941, with the German introduction of a much tighter customs cordon around Switzerland, that much of this Swiss trade in militarily useful war goods was stopped, although by that point, Britain had been able to obtain £330,000 worth of goods, especially machine tools and instruments. Officials in Berlin had been so concerned at this continued trickle of Swiss trade to Britain, they even considered assassinating the British ambassador to Switzerland, who was helping to orchestrate so much of this procurement. Despite German pressure, Swiss officials often turned a blind eye to British commercial skullduggery. In December of 1940, for instance, a Swiss technician was found with a list of people for possible recruitment by the British Consulate General. The matter, however, was swiftly dropped by the Swiss authorities. It also did not disclose the existence of an unofficial Watts factory whose entire output went to Britain and remained unaccounted for in official trade receipts. The tighter German export restrictions were only partially effective, however, and in 1942, Britain was still able to extract an additional £442,000 worth of materials and another 279000 in 1943. By this point, however, especially with the US entry into the war, the demand for Swiss precision manufacturers was less than it had been, as the Allies had largely been able to develop their own domestic industrial capabilities. Nonetheless, certain Swiss exports remained highly prized right up to the end of the war, including calipers, naval chronometers, fine screws and drills, various specifications of stopwatches and instrument jewels. By the end of hostilities in 1945, Britain's diplomatic smuggling operation had obtained £1.5 million worth of illicit goods. Although this Swiss trade with the Allies, especially Britain, continued throughout the war, the collapse of France in 1940 meant that Swiss exports were always now going to be dominated by German strategic interests. To give some scale to the disparity of these exports, total Allied exports up to the end of 1944 were around 29 million Swiss francs, which pale in comparison to the 600 million Swiss francs obtained by Germany during that same period. Recognising this new economic situation, Switzerland also signed two generous credit agreements with Berlin in August of 1940 and July of 1944, greatly accelerating German placement of orders and allowing Germany, by early 1944, to accumulate a debt of over a thousand million Swiss francs. To put this colossal sum in perspective, this represented no less than three quarters of Germany's total debt to continental neutral countries at the time. The Swiss government hoped that the Western Allies would understand their economic situation, and that they had little choice but to bend to German wishes in this regard. One senior Swiss official wrote of the German-Swiss trade agreement of July 1941, I don't hold it against the English, but they are unhappy with it. We are not filled with enthusiasm for it either. But it is not Switzerland's fault that France collapsed. Switzerland remained highly vulnerable to outside economic pressure, as only with the import of large quantities of coal, iron, steel, petroleum products, and other raw materials could it prevent Swiss industries and agriculture from grinding to a halt. The resulting economic dislocation would cause the kind of potentially revolutionary social unrest that was unacceptable to the generally conservative Swiss political elites. The Swiss government desperately tried to keep open outside import links by chartering 15 Greek ships. 
but Greece's entry into the war in October of 1940 meant that Switzerland had to turn instead to a motley collection of Yugoslav, Spanish, Panamanian and Portuguese vessels. The subsequent Yugoslav entry into the war in April of 1941 meant that a third of her total tonnage was also now unavailable and withdrawn from Swiss service. As an emergency measure, truck convoys were organised from Geneva to Spain, bringing urgent goods, and, for the first time, Switzerland even purchased 12 ocean-going vessels and manned them with Swiss officers. But despite all these efforts, Switzerland could not escape the economic reality that it was highly dependent on traditional cross-border imports from Germany and Italy. The result was the Swiss-German Trade and Credit Agreement signed in July of 1941, which pledged Switzerland's dairy and agricultural products to Germany, permitted Swiss industries to officially work on German contracts, and extended a further line of credit to Berlin, worth 450 million Swiss francs by the end of 1941, and rising to 850 million in 1942. In return, Switzerland would get the resources it needed to continue production, and stave off social unrest. The agreement enabled Berlin to draw on Switzerland's productive capacity without making any corresponding increase in her own exports or foreign currency payments. It is estimated that Swiss manufacturers accounted for around 4% of Germany's total wartime production, although this was significantly higher in certain specific sectors. Most crucially, Swiss companies in Germany accounted for between one-sixth and one-seventh of all aluminium produced by Germany, and Swiss-made shell fuses accounted for over 11% of Germany's total requirements by early 1943. This agreement came shortly after similarly one-sided agreements concluded with Germany's satellite states, Bulgaria, Denmark, Croatia and Slovakia, and seemed to confirm Switzerland's new position as an almost client state in the new European order. In the wake of the signing of a trade and credit agreement, Britain felt it had no choice but to immediately suspend all imports of industrial raw materials to Switzerland, having no wish to see its exported materials turned into German armaments. From early 1942, the only materials now permitted through this Allied blockade were food and fodder to prevent Switzerland from starving. Textile imports had also still been permitted until December of 1941, until evidence came to light of woolen goods being supplied to German forces experiencing its first bitter winter inside Russia. The Swiss believed they had little choice but to sacrifice economic neutrality in the hope of maintaining broader political neutrality during the war, even if that entailed supping with a devil in Berlin. The Swiss economy generally did very well out of the war, and only in 1944 did the value of Swiss exports drop below 1937 levels. The German invasion of the Soviet Union in mid-1941, massively expanded Germany's demand for Swiss manufacturers and locked key Swiss industrial sectors into Germany's economic production requirements. As a result, by 1942, Swiss exports to the Axis powers totaled some 1,100 million Swiss francs, as compared to a mere 1.7 million Swiss francs to the Allies. Swiss economic policy was also tailored to meet the interests of the country's powerful financial elites. There had developed a revolving door between the boards of major Swiss companies and the upper echelons of the Swiss government and the federal bureaucracy. The Swiss Chamber of Commerce, which represented the Association of Swiss Bankers, was afforded privileged access to the higher reaches of federal policy making during the war, and it helped to move Swiss economic policy towards alignment with Germany after mid-1940. 
Some Swiss companies even went so far as to provide written guarantees the racial purity of their board members to their German clients. And other Swiss companies that moved over the border into Germany took advantage of the use of forced labour. The massive profits accumulated by firms operating in Germany were usually excluded from official Swiss profit figures, meaning Switzerland's economic contribution to the German war effort was actually significantly larger than official figures account for. The seemingly urbane nature of the regular financial and business dealings that developed between Switzerland and Germany during the war had blinded many of its leading political and economic figures to the criminal nature of the regime it was dealing with. These dealings were not without consequence on the Allied side, which took to blacklisting both individuals and companies, but it felt it had become a little too collaborative with their northern neighbours. The British Ministry of Economic Warfare created a special blacklist committee to investigate Swiss corporate profiteering, and suspect firms were presented with the ultimatum of either reducing their exports to the Axis and submitting their accounts to British inspectors, or else finding themselves on the blacklist and losing what limited commercial access they still enjoyed with the outside world, both during the war and potentially even after it. This was the fate that befell the famous Ehrlich and Armaments Company after its decision to start supplying the German Navy. By February of 1943, 892 other Swiss companies had joined Ehrlichen on this list, although listing was usually done as a last resort, as, once listed, a company had nothing more to lose by dedicating itself fully to the needs of a German war economy. By July of 1943, the effects of the listing campaign were beginning to be felt, and the head of the Swiss Federal Trade Division considered this period of blacklisting to be the blackest chapter of Switzerland's war. By November of 1943, the number of companies blacklisted had reached 1,164, with another 50 under investigation. After some deliberation, the federal government moved to sign a trade and finance agreement with the Allies in December of 1943. This agreement saw major reductions in Swiss exports to Germany of arms, fuses, ball bearings, aircraft parts, precision instruments, machine tools and radio equipment by up to as much as 60% compared with 1942. Switzerland's economic value to Germany had been greatly reduced, although Berlin was still able to acquire 122 million Swiss francs worth of strategic goods over 1944, a figure equivalent to the total value of legitimate exports to Britain since the summer of 1940. It was not until the last months of the war, in March of 1945, that Switzerland took real steps to all but suspend its financial, transit and commercial relations with Berlin. By this point in the war, the Allies were able to dictate terms to the federal government and effectively force the Swiss into ending all exports of electricity to Germany and reduce Swiss-German trade to a miserly level of 2.5 million Swiss francs per month for the first three months and 1 million Swiss francs thereafter. Whilst on the topic of Swiss finance, it is worth mentioning the famous Swiss gold scandal. In late 1941, the Swiss National Bank began to purchase quantities of gold from the German Reichsbank and continued receiving Reichsbank gold in 1942 and 1943, despite the full knowledge that much of this gold had been acquired by dubious means. A lot of the gold had been seized by Nazi forces from occupied national treasuries, but some of it was even looted by the SS from personal jewellery, watches, and even the gold dental fillings of their victims, who were quite often Jewish. By today's standards, the value of the gold would be somewhere in the region of 6 billion US dollars. After the war, only around 15% of this gold was returned in return for Swiss francs, which were used to buy war materials and food. 
When questioned about its activity by the Allies in mid-1943, the bank tried to hide behind a shield of Swiss neutrality by claiming that to refuse gold is to operate a discrimination which is incompatible with our policy of neutrality. And it would also later point out that the Swiss National Bank had received almost double the amount of gold from the Allies as it did from the Axis. For obvious reasons, this defence is not entirely convincing, and the ethical value of Swiss neutrality was cast into doubt after the war by these revelations. And now, a brief discussion about Switzerland's army during the Second World War. Did Switzerland's citizen army hold up in its alpine bunkers, really deter aggressive action by Hitler's Germany and help preserve Swiss neutrality? The Swiss army certainly remained lacking in key equipment, at a time when so much of its native arms production was being sent out of the country into the hands of the only likely invader. Prior to French collapse in 1940, it was hoped that Swiss and French forces would link up in the event of invasion, and tentative planning for such a scenario had been underway since 1936. Given the inadequate nature of Swiss air defences, the federal government also became concerned that its industrial heartland and main centres of population were now vulnerable to new developments in air power. It therefore supplied Britain with details of its aviation supplies and airfields, in the hope that air assets might be deployed there in the event of invasion. But Switzerland was seen as largely a French problem by the British, and their suggestion was rebuffed. Throughout the phony war period, the Swiss general staff was nervous about the estimated 25 German divisions located close to the border, a force strength alarmingly close to the 30 divisions it was estimated would be needed to conquer Switzerland. After the success of Germany's Western campaign, Switzerland's commander-in-chief, General Henri Cuisin, was confronted with a nightmarish strategic landscape. In a speech on the 25th of July 1940, symbolically delivered on the Rutli Meadow, where Switzerland's first cantons had sworn to resist Habsburg encroachments in 1291, Cuisin unveiled what became known as the Redoubt Strategy, a last-stand strategic deterrence forged by rebuilding the Swiss Alpine Redoubt with modern fortifications. Realising that immediate short-term resistance was futile, he demobilised a large part of the Swiss army to ease Switzerland's tensions with Berlin, leaving only 150,000 men under arms, and then assigned a large part of his remaining force to Alpine construction work. In May of 1941, when parts of the Redoubt were completed, the overwhelming bulk of his mobilised forces were then moved into the fort system in order to deny Germany the prospect of destroying the Swiss army on the central plateau or of seizing the vital transalpine railways intact. Once construction on the Redoubt was largely completed by 1942, a British military observer thought that the new Swiss defences, garrisoned by nine divisions and twelve independent brigades, were practically impregnable, since they were too high to be reached by flamethrowers, too low to be attacked by dive bombers, and could only be approached by tanks one at a time. There is certainly no doubting the threat posed by Hitler's Germany. At his most charitable, Hitler was prepared to use the Swiss, at best, as hotel keepers, offering well-earned winter breaks for his Aryan supermen. At his worst, he called Switzerland a pimple on the face of Europe. Hitler's constant desire to unify Germanic peoples under his own banner meant that the extensive German-speaking component of Switzerland would always be a ready casus belli, if any excuse were needed to invade. Thankfully for Switzerland, German military planners never seriously considered bypassing the Maginot Line by going through Switzerland rather than the Low Countries. Quite simply, the terrain for German mechanised and armoured forces was better to the north. Indeed, the most comprehensive German invasion plan, Operation Tenenbaum, was not developed until after the surrender of France, 
and its planning was only assigned to a junior staff officer with no previous experience and working on a project of this size. When the Italians were sounded out about a possible combined operation, they demanded the lion's share in any potential territorial carve-up, thus leading to possible unwanted tensions between the two Axis partners. With the restrictions placed on the Swiss press by the Federal Council, and the generous credit and economic partnership that began to blossom, there seemed increasingly little reason to invade. The Swiss commander-in-chief, Guizan, correctly stated that henceforth the Germans would primarily exercise political and economic pressure, and that military action would scarcely be considered. Stalin was also no fan of Swiss neutrality, and as the Western Allied forces approached the Swiss border in late 1944, he encouraged the Allies to outflank German defences in the West by sending forces through Swiss territory. The image of a Swiss soldier, rifle in hand, guarding these Alpine forts, has become part of a continued commitment to armed neutrality during the Cold War, but ultimately the Red Out probably served little real purpose, as, at the moment of greatest risk in the summer of 1940, it barely existed as a credible deterrent, and by the time its construction was completed, the threat had largely passed. The strategy was also very high risk, involving the immediate abandonment of Switzerland's economically valuable and populous northern cantons, and it is debatable whether the Swiss political leadership would have allowed Cousin to continue sustained resistance from his mountain strongholds. The Swiss army also had very few material reserves to draw upon for sustained resistance, due both to deliberate German policy as well as the Allied blockade of all but foodstuffs. Explosives were always in critically short supply, and it was not until 1942 that the strategically vital St. Gotthard railway tunnel was finally made ready for demolition. An army report in early 1943 concluded that the Swiss army lacked foodstuffs, especially oats for horses, to cover a general mobilisation, and that one in four of its motor vehicles was out of service due to lack of rubber for tyres. It is worth noting the central importance of a Swiss railway network to continued neutrality. Switzerland's status as a strategic transport hub rested on Italy's chronic shortage of fuel and raw materials, especially coal, of which Italy demanded 12 million tonnes a year to continue fighting. From the moment Italy entered the war, it meant the Swiss rail tunnels at St. Cotard and lotzburg simplon were vital for Italy's economic survival. Had Axis forces invaded in the late summer or autumn of 1940, all major tunnels would have fallen into their hands intact, and a small number of sabotaged viaducts, ramps and bridges would not have posed insuperable difficulties for German engineers. Yet Swiss guardianship of the two vital rail arteries through the Alpine passes connecting the two Axis partners was of more use to Germany and Italy than direct control would ever have been. The Swiss-German-Italian St. Gotthard Convention, signed in 1909, already guaranteed free access to Switzerland's transalpine railway system to all three signatories. The Swiss Bundesbahnen was efficiently run, and Swiss neutrality also provided it with complete protection from Allied air attacks and sabotage efforts. There was little to be gained in attempting to seize it directly, and, indeed, a great deal to be potentially lost. Already by August 1940, some 1,800 rail wagons rolled across Switzerland every day, carrying about a third of Italy's total coal requirement, and in return, Italy sent agricultural produce and some 19,000 labourers northward. The war saw a huge increase in militarily untouchable rail traffic, with one of the two key rail lines moving from a pre-war annual capacity of 1.5 million tonnes up to 3.25 million tonnes by 1940, and a staggering 4.24 million tonnes in 1941 and 1942. 
the need to maintain the strategically vital transit traffic was the single biggest reason why Berlin restrained its economic and political demands on Switzerland during the war. It was not until the Allies applied diplomatic pressure in 1944 that the Swiss took action to reduce this cross-Alpine traffic by operating a list of prohibited goods and introducing tighter surveillance regulations. In November of 1944, southbound traffic to Italy from Germany was 60% lower than that of November 1943, but Switzerland was still deeply reluctant to go any further than that, as long as Germany was still responsible for most of its critical imports, including 97% of its coal in 1944. It was not until the partly rebuilt French army reached a Swiss frontier at Basel in early November 1944 that Germany's main rail line into Switzerland was severed. Although trains continued to be dispatched via the other line, the loss of the Basel line had a dramatic impact on the transit traffic. The Swiss government's quota and volume restrictions imposed over the same period were inconsequential in comparison. Swiss military planners were not blind to this fact, but were faced with considerable resource shortages. By spring of 1941, most of the major viaducts, bridges and cuttings along the rail routes were rigged for demolition, but the vital tunnels at Simplon and St. Gotthard were not fully ready until the spring and summer of 1942. With a demolition system for the railway lines largely complete, Cuisan was then in a position to embrace a full deterrent strategy and concentrate his forces in the redoubt. By early the following year, Cuisan possessed a comprehensive and in terms of Swiss deterrent strategy, a formidable demolition program covering Switzerland's railway lines, tunnels and viaducts, its rolling stock, repair facilities and energy supplies. Yet seven months needed to complete even the primary phase of his project, between the summer of 1940 and the spring of 1941, coincided with the period in which the German invasion threat was most acute. Had Hitler struck and broken Swiss resistance at this time, all major tunnels would have fallen into his hand. And now a little bit about the Swiss Air Force, which was equipped with a variety of aircraft, but primarily it was made up of German-made Messerschmitt 109s, possessing around 90 of them by 1940. These aircraft proved irritating to Hitler, when, during the German campaign in the West, they shot down half a dozen Heinkel 111s that were violating Swiss airspace. This was partly compensated for by the fact that during the war, Switzerland tended to release German pilots who landed by mistake in Switzerland, claiming that their flights were of a non-operational character. The same courtesy was never extended to Allied airmen. Although the Swiss Air Force itself was of relatively little consequence during the war, it does open up the issue of the use of neutral airspace by belligerent forces during times of war. I think I will probably do a separate podcast on this issue, as it is really interesting in its own right, but, in brief, Swiss airspace was often used as a navigational aid and as a means to avoid the German air defence network by Anglo-American strategic bombers. And, as in the last war, Switzerland sought to provide humanitarian and diplomatic services to the belligerents to increase its perceived value as a useful neutral. It was most prominent during the Second War in its role as a so-called protecting power, where Switzerland would represent the interests of a particular country within another country when no formal diplomatic links existed, in this case because of the ongoing war. Part of the responsibility was to inquire into the welfare of prisoners of war. By May of 1945, Switzerland had represented the interests of some 43 different countries, providing them with a means of transmitting confidential communications to their adversaries, guaranteeing the security of their diplomatic premises abroad, and ensuring that their citizens in enemy hands were not mistreated. Swiss protecting power work 
was seen as so vital by many on the Allied side that it partially eclipsed the bitterness that had been created by the maintenance of such close-knit economic ties with Nazi Germany. As the war drew to a close, the fate of the Allied prisoners of war in Germany grew to be a major concern, and the Swiss government devoted enormous time and resources to its protecting power activities, which partly explained Churchill's earlier glowing remarks in December of 1944, where he proclaimed Switzerland to be the only decent neutral in the world. However, there was also a much darker side to some of the Swiss humanitarian activities. In 1942, for instance, at the initiative of a Germanophile Swiss minister in Berlin, four medical missions were dispatched to ten German wounded on the Eastern Front, which deliberately ignored Soviet wounded. This initiative was funded by contributions drawn from companies deeply involved in Switzerland's export trade with Germany. Immigration was also an area that cast a long shadow over the supposed impartiality of Swiss neutrality. It adopted an insular attitude towards the refugee problem created by war, and was more concerned with the threat posed to Switzerland's social and political security. Anti-Semitism and xenophobia was rampant in many federal government circles, and there was a wish to defend so-called pure Swiss society from contamination from alien, biological, cultural or commercial influences. The most notorious instance of this attitude was Bern's insistence on the introduction of a J-stamp on German passports for Jews in 1938, in order to facilitate Swiss discrimination between so-called desirable and undesirable immigrants. Despite having only admitted 9,600 refugees by August of 1942, the decision was still made that Switzerland was full, and Swiss frontier guards were instructed to eject refugees found crossing the border, regardless of potential consequences for the individuals or groups involved, and any repeat offenders were often handed over to the Vichy state or to the German police. There were some 24,500 documented cases of refugees being refused entry during the war. It was only with the creation of a US War Refugee Board in 1944 that Switzerland belatedly moved to provide refuge for Hungarian Jews and other concentration camp victims. The Federal Council also used its influence in the International Committee of the Red Cross to prevent the organisation from making a public statement on the Holocaust. So, to sum up for this week, on the one hand, I can use the words of one historian, and I quote, The survival of thriving parliamentary institutions in the midst of fascist Europe demonstrated the vitality of democracy far more effectively than the Allied propagandists could ever hope to accomplish. End of quotation. Yet it seems that all too often, Switzerland's claim to political neutrality was tailored to suit the needs of the country's commercial elite. Switzerland's close commercial and strategic relationship with the Axis powers was perhaps inevitable after the collapse of the West in 1940, but that just goes to demonstrate how neutrality in its purest form is dependent on the strategic power situation surrounding any particular nation. After the war, Switzerland, unlike the Netherlands, had no interest in joining NATO. 2002 saw a landmark referendum, with 54% voting in favour of Switzerland's entry into the United Nations, and even allowing the deployment of armed Swiss troops for international peacekeeping missions, which some critics believe marks an end to Switzerland's status as a true permanent neutral. Okay, that's all for this week. If you have any questions about this episode, or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytonpod at gmail.com. I'm also more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast. Next time, the European Neutral series will be continuing with a look at Spain and its incredible decline throughout the 19th century and weakened status during the First World War.
I do hope you can join me for that. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time. Yeah.